0: Howdy, howdy, motherfuckers. This is episode 12 of the Five Figures Podcast. It's been a couple of weeks. I'm going to be honest, most of it was just that I was busy, but a significant portion of it was just that, no, yeah, it was just basically that I was busy. That, in short, sums it up. Some decent fight cards. We had the Ortega Rodriguez card recently. I thought there were some interesting performances on that. That I kind of actually did want to talk about. Ricky Simone had a fucking banger of a performance against Jack Shaw. Thought he looked sensational. Sensational. Dustin Stoltzfus looked great against Dwight Grant. Just, I don't know, looked actually composed and and whatnot. I don't know. I just just didn't expect a a lot out of him. Emily Ducote versus Jessica Benet. She was amazing. She deserves some props. I, I thought she, her hands looked really nice. I thought her hands looked really nice. Jessica Panay especially came out looking solid. I thought looked, utilizing a good jab and lots of really nice hip feints. But Ducote, I, I thought, adjusted really effectively to her offense and, and was able to pip her for, for a pretty unanimous decision. Punehele Pune Soriano actually got a victory, actually got a knockout. I love that guy. He's awesome. You know, Shane Burgos had a banger with Charles Jourdain. Lauren Murphy had uh, the most boring fight conceivable against Misha Tate. No one gave a shit. Matt Schnell had a banger with Sue Matajeri. Lee Jing Liang got a knockout over Muslim Salakov. Like, I don't know, man. There was a lot of there was a lot of fights on that card. And then, you know, prior to that you also had the Dos Anjos versus Z of card, which I didn't really cover as well, but hey, I'm back, and we're, we're going to be talking about Blaze versus Aspinall, the UFC London card, the second one this year at the O2, and the last one was really good. This one was not as good, but it did have some bangers, it did have some really good performances that we should definitely highlight. We're not really going to talk about the main event, obviously, because that ended in a TKO via knee injury, because Tom Aspinall, he threw an outside low kick, he stepped back, I haven't seen the reports yet. I kind of want to jump on Twitter and see if anyone's got an update on him. I'm just seeing ESPN MMA's saying that yeah, falls in pain. Uh, I yeah, I don't know. I I don't think, I don't think anyone has an answer right now as to what exactly the injury was but besides that there were a lot of really interesting fights on this card some not as exciting as the previous incantation incantation incarnation of the UFC London brand but some great performances nonetheless where should we start we could talk about we could talk about Muhammad makaya first cuz i fucking i thought he was so good he does so many cool things given this was this as exciting a performance as his ufc debut i mean Not many things are going to be as exciting as, you know, getting a finish, getting a submission in the first 50 seconds of a fight, of course. But I thought, technically speaking, we saw a lot of really interesting things out of him. I think, on the wrestling side of things, I just love the way that he constantly, constantly entangles the legs when standing. I think, well, in the first round, you go through, and a significant portion of that round is Charles Johnson trying to fight the hands because Makaev has a body lock. And Mikhaev is just constantly trying to ride up the back, trying to, to sink hooks in. And he's got one hook in on one side the whole time. He's constantly, he's got a, his legs in between his opponent's legs, every second of the fight possible. And he's mixing things up just so consistently. He's either pushing into the back of the knees. He's constantly threatening to to push the leg out from behind and then pull Johnson back over. And then other times, he's also threatening to just take the back and and take him for a ride, take him for a suplex, lift him, which he did in the third round. I mean, it's just, it's so nice. And then other times, he's just threatening to take the back climb on and and look for the rear naked choke and things like that. And I just think, wow, he's just so constant in his offense. Yeah, so much of that first round. I thought Johnson did a pretty good job of trying to nullify Makayev taking his back. But yeah, most of it was just Makaev grapevining the leg. And then, you know, fighting hands, utilizing the body lock. was really interesting. I thought he was really good. Again, I reiterate, not as exciting as his UFC debut, but really promising because I really... We went through the first round, and I thought coming out of it, is his gas tank going to hold up? Because, you know, I know a lot of that that round, he was basically just... he He was sitting on Johnson's back, and it can be quite... It can require a lot of energy expenditure to maintain a position like semi-back control, I guess, for five minutes. But, you know, he did that really effectively. Yeah, I just I thought he was really good in terms of the wrestling. And then he was doing cool stuff on the feet as well at the beginning of the first round. He comes out, and I'm trying to remember, is Charles Johnson a Southpaw or Orthodox? I think he might have been Southpaw. Oh, Johnson is a switch stance guy. Okay, so what was happening often is... Makaev is trying to land his left hook, left hook into a right hand, and Johnson is moving away from the power hand, he's circling out, trying to avoid that left hook as well, you know, and I thought he was actually doing a really good job, because in one of the first exchanges, Makaev cuts off the cage, and his his cage cutting, was, I thought, I thought was very impressive, he was getting Johnson right on the cage, utilizing a lot of feints, and then Johnson will kind of flatten his stance out, and, and then he's trying to figure out which way he wants to go to try and try and circle off. And there's an early exchange in which Makaev enters and then looks for his left hook, and Johnson, he he goes the right way. You know, he goes to his right, which is Makaev's left, and he's able to get away from the left hook up to the head. And then Makaev adjusts things, and there's an exchange maybe half a minute later where Johnson is able to circle away and he's, he's actually, he's hes away from Makaev. He's no longer in front of Makaev. He has circled away from him to his right. And Makaev, instead of going for the left hook up top, which there's too much ground to cover, you're not going to be able to land that shot if the guy isn't in front of you. He, he's already circled out quite effectively. You know, there's a bit of space between you. It, the left hook, you can land it at range, but ultimately it's not a jab. It, it has a limited range on it. So McIverns there goes for the left hook to the body, and he lands, and it looks really good. And mm, I just like that. I like weapons for when guys are able to circle off the cage against you, because, and we're going to talk about this in a second with Chris Curtis versus Jack Amanson, because Chris Curtis did not have that weapon in that fight. But it's just such a valuable asset to have. The most famous, I, I know, I feel like every second episode is me going, well. The famous example I can point to is Conor McGregor, but, well, the famous example I can point to in this regard is, in fact, Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor was really good at corralling guys the direction that he wanted them. Most of the time, he wanted them moving into the left hand, but he was also kind of content with guys circling away from the left hand, because, you know, you're in a fight with Conor McGregor, the shot that he's landing on you pretty consistently is going to be a pull-counter left hand, or he's trying to land his, his just straight left by itself as he's moving forward. But we're talking about, like, early career. We're talking about, like, versus Max Holloway. We're talking about versus Diego Brandau. Those kind of guys. And what, what you find is that guys, will they're going to move away from the left hand, so they're going to move to their left, okay? And they're going to circle away. And often, Conor would kind of give them that angle. He'd allow them to circle in that direction. And... The reason that he allowed this is because he's he's setting up his straight left and he would he would pimp it about as far as he possibly could like he'd get complete range of motion complete extension on it like look at the way that he knocks out Chad Mendez Chad's moving away from the left hand it wasn't like the knockdowns and you know the knockout against Eddie Alvarez where Eddie is moving in he's throwing the right hand and he's moving in towards the left no if we look at the Chad Mendez fight that knock that knockdown occurs with Chad moving away from the left hand and Connor extends really long with his straight left and he gets like full torque on it. And that's that's the reason that it, it was such an effective strike in that context, is because he was able to extend so wholly with it. And so, you know, he's also got other weapons to corral people in the direction that he wants. If he wants them to move towards his left hand, he'll throw the spinning the spinning psychic, or at least he used to. He threw that a lot against Diego Brandau. He threw it a little bit against Dustin Poirier. threw it a lot against Dennis Seaver. You, you see that quite a bit when he wants him to move in that direction. And Chad Mendes as well. Yeah, so he, he has weapons to corral guys where he wants them. But yeah, if they're circling out around that lead foot of Connor, he will kind of gladly accept that as an opportunity to land his straight left. Because they're not, if, if they're circling out in that direction, it can be difficult for them to plant and fire. They have to kind of take a beat. So if you have a long enough weapon, and you can land as they're circling out, as they're kind of, like, yes, they're far away from the hands, but I think they're defensively vulnerable in some ways. If you have that kind of a weapon, it can be very effective. Makayev utilized that left hook to the body, and I thought it was a really good weapon to use. Yeah, so that was cool. I thought Makayev had just a sensational fight, and I came into this fight thinking, eh, I don't know if he's all that. I don't know if he's actually as good as I want him to be. And then he just, I thought he put on a sensational performance against a UFC debutant, sure. But a guy out of Tiger Muay Thai, a guy who's quite legit in Charles Johnson. So, you know, that was cool. Amir Khani, Makwan Amir Khani gassed. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Who would have thunk it? Jonathan Pierce came out and, and put on a really good performance in that second round. Good first round, sure. But that, that second round, put it on Amir Khani, got the finish. Cool. Jai Herbert got a victory over Carl Nelson. We love to see it. I thought Carl Nelson actually looked really good in that first round there. Kind of upset Jai a little bit. Good work in the clinch. Great elbows as well. He had the overhook on the left side, and he, they were kind of jostling for bicep control on the other side. And whenever Carl's getting bicep control, or whenever he's getting a, a solid frame on the shoulder or on the face, he's just firing these really short-range side elbows. And I thought he was doing a lot of damage. I thought he was doing a lot of very effective work in that position. Looked great. Nicholas Dolby had a dogfight with Claudio Silva to open the prelims. Yeah, if I'm recalling correctly, I think he yeah, he lost that first round. Like got pretty outhandedly wrestled. And then, man, Nicholas Dolby just found the knees. The second round was pretty much him just fighting his way into the clinch, and then when he's in the clinch, he's grabbing single collar ties or he's he's getting an overhook and he's getting you know he's framing on the face that was the main key it was framing on the face with the left hand there was an exchange in the middle of the second round where yeah he's just in the clinch and he's framing on the face with the left hand and it's opening up the entire body body of Claudio Silva and Dolby is just able to mash him with knees it was a really good victory and you'll love to see it because I, I do love Nicholas Dolby and he is a bit of an up and down kind of guy he's had a couple of no contests in recent years he had that no contest with Ross Houston where the the cage floor, that was in Cage Warriors, the the floor got so bloody that they were just slipping all over the place like it was a fucking amusement ride. It It was pretty hilarious. And then he came back and he had that victory over Alex Oliveira and then he had a no contest with Jesse Ronson back in 2020. And that was, I mean, that was originally a loss for him. But then that was overturned. And, yeah, but he's, he's kind of had it up and down. He got the victory over Daniel Rodriguez, which is a really impressive victory back in 2020, but then he lost to Tim Means. Now he's got the victory over Claudio Silva. I want to see him be a little more active because, you know, he fought twice in 2020 and then only once in 2021. He's only fought once in 2022 thus far. But, yeah, he's a really fun fighter. Always puts on a banger. Good to see. What else was on this card? Nathaniel Wood looked incredible. He looked fucking sensational. I have been high on Nathaniel Wood for a little while. Not so much recently. There were there were a couple of losses. There was that loss in the third round of John Dodson back in 2020. And then later on, uh, he got he got a victory back in the middle stages of the year, but then in October he loses to Casey Kenny. Admittedly, sensational fight. Probably one of Casey Kenny's best victories. Probably his best to date, actually. It was a really, really impressive victory from Casey Kenny. But yeah, it, it's been a little while. He hasn't fought since then, and now he's come back, and he's fighting at featherweight. He fought against Charles Rosa, and I just thought he had an incredible performance. I love the way that at the beginning of the fight, he was picking up both legs, he was feinting the kicks, and then he's coming with the right hand behind it, you know, and then he's using the threat of the hands later on in the fight to really effectively land the outside low kick, and that outside low kick was giving Charles Rosa so many issues. He was forcing him to switch, because he couldn't stand in orthodox, because when he was getting his leg chewed up, I mean, he was getting pushed He was getting pushed back and, and he was getting put on his ass by it. It was a really good low kick that Nathaniel Wood was showing. And he wasn't just throwing it naked. It wasn't like he was just, you know, blasting low kicks and, and praying for the best. No, there was a lot of really good feint work off of the right hand. I love one of my favorite things. I, I know that you don't get as much power on the low kick when you do this. But, because, because you can't turn all the way into it. But, it's something Israel Adesanya does really well as well. He'll stand in orthodox and he'll he'll palm his opponent's lead hand with his right hand, and then from that same right side, so he has his right hand extended, and then from that same side, he'll throw the outside low kick. He'll throw the right kick, and guys get preoccupied with the hands because they're like, "Oh, this motherfucker's trying to grab my hands. Get the fuck out of my face!" And then you just slide the kick underneath it, and it can it can catch guys off guard, and it can you can actually. You can take them off their feet because they're just not anticipating as much as they would a naked low kick on the outside, you know? And Nathaniel Wood was throwing that. He was throwing that. He was throwing some naked low kicks, just kind of mixing them in there. But I thought he was setting things up really effectively. Lead hand looked sensational. His left hook always looks great. Yeah, Charles Rosa just had nothing, dude. And then when they were getting in the clinch, Nathaniel Wood's going to the double collar ties and he's getting these outside foot sweeps. And oh man, he's just getting them over and, over and over and over and over and over again, and it was just so impressive. I was so yeah, I was just really fucking impressed. I thought Nathaniel would look great, and then on the ground he looked great, and he was just looked so strong. He looked he looked ridiculously fast, and I am very excited to see him in this featherweight division because he didn't look that small as well. He didn't look that small. I mean, he came into the UFC quite young, and he's twenty eight years of age now. I think now he's kind of he's filled in to himself, and I think this is probably his division, because he he didn't look undersized against Rosa at all, in my opinion, I, I don't think he looked undersized at all, I, I think this was, this this is his division now, and I'm very excited for him to hopefully move up the rankings and do some things, because his striking is so clean, and as we saw in the clinch, those outside foot sweeps, man, they were fucking nice, they were beautiful, what else do we have, Mark Casey wrestled fucked Demir Hadjavich, and it was like, I don't care about this fight at all. Yeah, Mark case he did this in his last fight, if I recall correctly. Who was that against? It was uh Borshev. Yeah. Basically the exact same thing. He went back-to-back losing against Hafael Fazeev and Hafael Alves. He got submitted in that Alves fight, and then, since then, it's been wrestle-fucking-galore. You know, against Borshev, boring performance. In my opinion, boring performance. Uh, admittedly, in this fight against Demir, I thought his single leg looked really good. I think it was at the beginning of the second round, the way that he was he was moving with the single leg and he got the takedown off of it. It was nice. It was really nice. But, eh, I don't know. There just wasn't that much going on on, on the ground to keep me particularly entertained. What else did we have? Volkan me versus Paul Craig was as dumb and as silly as a Paul Craig fight is going to be. And I thought it was so much closer than, than any of the judges' scorecards had it. I'm seeing 30-27 on all three judges' scorecards. I thought the first round was actually really close. Yes, Paul Craig didn't land as many damaging shots, but I thought his pulling was actually quite effective in that round. And I thought he did—he got pretty decently close to a heel hook at one point. Vulcan was doing a really good job hiding the heel. He was hiding the heel very effectively. He was turning into, I think it was his right leg that was caught, and he rolled initially. And it looked for a second like Paul had lost, he'd lost it completely, and the commentators were saying, "Oh, he's going to st- switch to a straight ankle lock," but he kept up, looking for the heel. And Vulcan did a really good job, kind of sliding his his foot underneath Paul and moving further to his right, basically, not, yeah, just not allowing Paul to to find the ankle and start cranking. Really good defense. Then uh, Paul Craig was doing dope shit on the feet. In the second round, because obviously in the first round he's he's pulling guard against Vulcan, and when he's failing these these guard pulls, they're kind of like, like looking at each other because Uzdemir doesn't want to enter the guard; he just got out of the guard. He doesn't want to go back in. And Paul's like, "Well, I don't want to stand up and have you punch me on the way up. Like, I don't want to have to perform a tactical stand up. I'm just going to wait for the ref to stand us up because nothing's happening." So that's the first round. Paul Craig just lies on the ground, Vulcan just goes, yeah, all right, and then the ref stands them up, and then they go back to fighting on the feet, okay, second round, Paul Craig just says, fuck that shit, and starts standing up really quickly, and just coming out right out of the gates, as he stands up with left hooks, and starts landing big shots, and I thought, "Mm, I thought you could actually give the second round to Paul Craig, I thought the first round you might be able to give to Paul Craig, that one was a little, it was I'd, I'd say it was Demir, you know, giving him that first round, no qualms about it. But, like, that second round, man, I don't know. I don't know. I thought Paul Craig landed the bigger shots. And he landed a couple of high kicks. I thought he looked really good. Looked sloppy, as he always does. But I thought looked good in, in the sense that he was landing damaging shots. And then the third round, yeah, it just... His game just wasn't working at that point in Vulcan. I thought he'd picked up. His volume, I thought he picked up his accuracy. Was landing his left hook. Yeah, I just thought... His right hand started connecting a lot more often in that third round as well. And he was catching Paul as Paul was kicking. That was, uh, I think, a very significant factor. So, yes, that was a weird fight. But not completely surprising that Vulcan was able to pull that off. Paul Craig is... He's a weird fighter. (laughs) He's a weird fighter. Molly McCann took on Hannah Goldie. They had, uh, well, there was a couple of minutes there of McCann kind of being held up against defense by Goldie. I thought Goldie looked really strong in the clinch, but she didn't really do a whole lot. And then they separated. And man, McCann's, Molly's fighting in, in flyweight. And I'm trying to think. Think about the flyweight division and think about the people who are in, the who, like who have challenged for the belt at women's flyweight. We go through, like, Kaitlyn Shikagian, you've got Lauren Murphy. Like, there are just not that many good fucking boxers in this division. Realistically, women's flyweight, it doesn't have that many good boxers. And so you can kind of make it pretty far on the feet if you've just got a bit of power and you've got some decent fundamentals. And that's exactly what Molly McCann has. And you see the finish here. She finishes Hannah Goldie in the first round via TKO. It was really nice. I like the way that she threw the overhand right, and she immediately weaves under the left hook counter that Goldie offers. And that that right hand put Goldie in a bad spot. And then she goes back the other direction. So she throws the overhand right, and then weaves underneath the left hook. And then she spins in the opposite direction that she just weaved to to land the spinning elbow. I thought it was just a really really well-executed combination because she's moving in two different directions immediately subsequent to one another. So, Goldie just... I mean, she got rocked by the right hand, but even if she wasn't rocked, she was going to have some issues with the constantly changing direction of offense. And McCann was able to get that finish, and the, the O2 arena fucking lost their shit. It was dope. Loved it. Great performance. That's an interesting division, looking up and down it. I mean, if we're talking about strikers... There's not a whole lot there that really interests me. Or not that really interests me, but just that I think are particularly... Uh, that are particularly fundamentally sound. Alexa Grasso's the best boxer in that division. The best pure boxer in that division, that is. And then you've got, like, Jessica Andrade has a lot of power, has a mean left hook, but girls still can't cut the cage that effectively. You know, so I think... If you're Molly McCann, you're looking at this division, and you're kind of salivating a little bit because as long as you can avoid the takedown against half of these motherfuckers, yes, you're going to be at a reach deficit against people like Caitlin Shikagian and Lauren Murphy. But like, look at Shakagian. Shikagian does have at times some decent timing with the one two. But I feel like she just she sits in the pocket too long. And you can you can time her her jab. Her jab is not that snappy. It is it's kind of laboured. As long as you can avoid the takedown against Chicago, and you look at someone like Molly McCann and I think she could actually genuinely have a lot of success against a top contender in that division. Is flyweight a good division? Not particularly, but I mean that's more, more power to Molly McCann. I think she can, she can leapfrog a few girls and she can put herself into contendership status. If she keeps putting on performances like this because I thought her boxing looked really solid from the get-go, yeah, she was really fun. That was cool. Nikita Krilov knocked out the ghost of Alexander Gustavson. I honestly expected so much more. I, I bet money on Gustafsson because I saw the line on him and I was like, really? Really? I still think, you know, Krilov is so floppy, you know, and he throws his kicks and he throws them naked. And I just think that rear hand uppercut of Gustafsson or the, or the straight right off of the jab, you know, I, I just think he's probably going to catch Krilov while Krilov's throwing a kick or something. And, uh, no. Gustavson got hit with what was it a right hand were they an open stance I can't I can't remember is Krilov Southpaw I think he might be Southpaw I think he threw a straight left and landed on Gustafson and put Gustafson down and it was like well there we go and then you know there was some follow-up Gustavson got back up to his feet and then he got finished properly and it was just really depressing and then now you go on Twitter and Daniel Cormier is going dude retire and I'm like, ha, <laughs> jokes on you, DC. Gustafson's already retired like three fucking times now. So this ain't nothing new for the man. Yeah, it was just it was it was a bit depressing. I didn't really like that. But you know. Shout out to Krilloff. He got the victory, I guess. How delightful. And then the the fight that half of y'all motherfuckers probably want to hear about, Paddy fucking Pimblett. Paddy Pimblett pulls off a great performance against Jordan Levitt. Levitt I thought looked really good in the first round. Uh, he did a really good job nullifying some of the threat of the the front headlock that patty was showing off he was patty was constantly looking for the guillotine he was looking for anything off of that front headlock and wasn't able to get anything going proper in that first round level was able to sit on top and and do decent work but then at the end of the first round Patty patty put in some good work ended up on top what i think it was a guillotine attempt he got a submission attempt going. I can't I can't recall exactly which submission attempt it was, but he got a submission attempt going and then ended up on top and was landing some big ground and pound. And I think there, there were some people who were saying, you know, they that was enough for them to give him the round. And I think, honestly, I can't really begrudge them that opinion because Jordan Levitt didn't really land anything significant throughout the course of that first round. So it's like, I don't know. It, it's a weird round to score. It's a difficult round to score. But then that second round, yeah, Patty did his thing, got to the back. Got to the back, motherfucker. And then initially, I thought Jordan Levitt's defense, like putting his left arm up, I, I thought he was being very very conscientious and very, just very difficult with Paddy. Making it very difficult for Paddy to, to slide the arm in. But I don't know, man. He just found a fucking way. He just he cleared that left arm and he was able to, uh, to slide his arm in and, and get the choke. And everyone went crazy. And then he also had a really cool post-fight interview where he was like, you know, my, my uh, One of my mates killed himself the other day and gave a, a whole speech about mental health. And a lot of the time it feels very, very much like virtue signaling from some people. But this felt very, very genuine. And I thought it was a really good message. And I think it was a very practical and applicable message to put out there. And the crowd got behind it. Everyone got behind it. I honestly shed a bit of a tear because it was quite sad and really just really powerful. It was a really powerful message from Patty. Incredible performance. Really impressed by him. Again, on the feet. He's nothing special. He's a bit fucking wild. Yeah, he throws a lot of kicks. His hands aren't that clean at all. He keeps his head fucking sky high. But, you know, in scrambles, he's very entertaining to watch. This was a pretty damn entertaining fight to watch. Yeah. It was cool. It was cool. Obviously, I I want to keep watching Molly McCann and Paddy Pimblett at the O2 Arena because the atmosphere that they generate is really, really fun. And as someone who's been watching the sport for quite a few years now, you, I mean, it's like with anything. Sometimes you kind of feel like you've lost the allure of the sport, you know, when you first come into it or, or when you get those massive superstars of yesteryear, you get your Conor McGregor's. You know, and they're rising up the ranks and every single fight feels like it's the end of the world it's the biggest thing happening in the world that moment, that day, that week you lose that over the years because, well, you're watching it every single weekend you're watching it over and over and over again and it just doesn't feel as significant after a while But then you get an individual like Paddy Pimblin who creates this atmosphere of jubilation and excitement and intensity. And it's just so much fun to engage in. And it really harkens back to when you first start watching this fucking thing. And I love to see it. I really do love to see it. Whether he wins or loses in his next fight, I mean, I hope they don't give him too big of a step up in competition because Jordan Levitt isn't that, like, he's not cream of the crop. And this is the lightweight division. You know, if this was featherweight... You could kind of rocket Patty into the top 15, top 10, because there's not a lot of movement in that division, or there isn't as much movement in that division as there is at Lightweight. Lightweight, you, you've got so many killers, so many killers just going out of the rankings, not even looking at the rankings, looking outside the rankings. There is just killer after killer after killer. So it's difficult for me to see Patty getting anywhere significant in a division where you know, the cream of the crops, your Charles Oliveira, your Izar Makhachev, your Dustin Poirier, Justin Justin Gaethje, of Fazeev now. Like, these are killers. These are murderers. But then you look outside that and you've got your Armin Sarukians. You've got your Gamrotz. You know, your Benil Dariush. Your, you know, I don't think is is the cream of the crop like your Charles Oliveira or your Izar Makhachev, but, you know, he's still incredibly dangerous and has finishing power. And you're like, Paddy's not going to make it to the title. <laughs> He's not going to make it anywhere near the title with the striking that he has. But it's still damn fun to watch him fight. So, you know, I cannot begrudge him for putting on entertaining fights and, and keeping me invested. I love that shit. I love this shit. So, shout out Paddy Pimblett for for keeping things interesting. And then in the co-main event, Jesus Christ, we referred to it earlier when we were talking about Nathaniel Wood. We were talking about cutting off the cage. And then if guys are able to circle away from you, what's the weapons that you use? Now some guys like throwing up switch kicks to the head because that's a really long weapon, and if a guy is kind of circling out and back into the middle of the octagon, the hands are probably they're probably a little bit lower cuz they're no longer right in front of you. So the threat of offense is just not as high. So and also they're moving quickly because you've got to move quickly to get back to the center of the octagon. That's why it can be so difficult to sit on the back foot for an extended period of time because you're moving the whole time. The person who takes the middle of the octagon, they don't have to move as far to be able to stand in front of you. Whereas if you're being pushed around and you're being pushed against the cage quite constantly, you have to move so much more. You have so much more ground that you need to cover to get in on your opponent or, or to circle off to, to make it back into the center of the octagon after circling, it requires so much more effort than your you know, your opponent. So having weapons as guys circle out and taking advantage of them focusing on all the effort that they're putting in to get back to the middle of the octagon, it, it can be very valuable. It can be, be very useful. And Nathaniel Wood, not Nathaniel Wood, I, I referred to Nathaniel Wood multiple times. I mean, I meant Maka, Makaev, that's the word. That's the name. Micaiah's left hook to the body, a great shout. A switch kick to the head, that's also a great shout, that kind of thing. That's a kind of low percentage technique that you, you probably wouldn't... It's not going to land that frequently in a fight, but in that kind of position, in that kind of circumstance, it might. And then you look at a motherfucker like Chris Curtis, who, <laughs> oh my God, he got so angry in this fight. And he's a guy who we've been really, we've been building up, we've been acclaiming. You know, he's just coming off of that Vieira fight. And I thought he was sensational in that fight. I thought his left hand looked great. Left hand to the head and the way that he would mix it up and go the left hand to the body. And then he's coming up with the right hook out of that. And the whole time I was watching this, I was thinking to myself, you have a right hook. Why the fuck are you not using that right hook to the body, okay? Because he was landing left hooks to the body. Don't get me wrong. He was landing some good left hooks to to the body and whatnot, but that is such a far weapon. When he was throwing it straight, he was he was landing it pretty consistently. But then the the left hook to the body, man, that that is that's something that Chris Curtis loves throwing. He loves throwing, you know, right hook into the left hook because he's southpaw, and so the rear hand he he really turns into, and he wants to land that left hook to the body. But Rear hooks to the body have to cover so much distance, it is a very difficult shot to land. You're throwing with the rear hand, first and foremost, so it is, by default, the hand furthest away from your opponent. And then additionally, it's a shot in a Southpaw Orthodox matchup, it has to cover even more distance, because, you know, if it's Southpaw versus Southpaw... Or Orthodox versus Orthodox. You throw the rear hand, and you're kind of firing into the side, which is which is a bit closer to you. But then, if it's left hand in a Southpaw Orthodox matchup, and you're throwing it as a hook to the body, that side, that right side of your opponent that lines up with your left is. It's back. It's further away from you. So you have even more distance to cover in an open stance matchup when you're throwing that left hook to the body. And if your opponent is Jack Amanson and Jack Amanson is throwing great kicks, he's throwing a pretty awesome jab, actually. There was one point in this fight where he landed a triple jab on Curtis and uh, I just looked sensational. Didn't get hit for it at all. Didn't get counted at all. Jack Manson's doing a great job. He is constantly moving. He's using using inside low kicks, outside low kicks. He's throwing up the high kick in that second round. He hurt Chris Curtis with the high kick. Even when Chris was blocking it, Jack was putting it up and he was finding the holes. He was finding the gaps and he was putting it up there and he was hurting Chris Curtis. So you've got someone who's incredibly elusive, who's always on the move, and you're using left hooks to the body as a southpaw versus an orthodox opponent. And keep in mind, Hamanson is often moving away from the power hand. He's moving away from the left. That is not the time to throw a left hook to the body, because that weapon already—it already lacks range. It already requires you to step in incredibly deep to land the shot. But then if your opponent is moving away from it as well, and you aren't cutting off the cage really effectively. Like, it's not like his right hook was corralling Jack into the left hand. No, it wasn't at all. Jack was still moving out away from the left hand. And Chris Curtis is committing to these left, hook to, left hooks to the body. And it's like, bro, stop it. Fucking stop it. Oh, my God. And he just he kept getting irritated because he couldn't cut off the cage against Jack. And he's like, well, Jack's running away. It's like, well, no. He's not running away. It's a fucking fight. You're in the middle of an octagon. You're in the middle of a goddamn cage. You just can't get him to stand in front of you and bang like you want to. You know? Jack's coming off of this loss against Sean Strickland, and we're all thinking to ourselves, yeah, he's fucking... He's... he's stand up his ass now. It's completely regressed. But... I mean, it just... It demands the right opponent. And I think a guy like... A guy like Strickland, who has a good pullback and a really well-timed, snappy jab. Not not the kind of jab which finishes the fight. Absolutely not. But just a well-timed jab. That's a guy who's going to give Jack Manson a lot of issues because Jack relies so much on peppering the low kicks and then going with the high kick and then also mixing in his takedown offense. And I think that's part of it. Chris Curtis didn't feel comfortable because he defended a couple of those takedowns. And I, I thought Jack did really good on some of those entries being really elusive and making them quite unexpected so chris was constantly like i can't bring my hips all the way into Hermanson because he's just going to take me down so you know that that certainly played into it but yeah i i don't know it was just frustrating to watch as someone who who has liked chris curtis's style quite a lot recently has liked what he like what he did against Phil Hawes liked what he did against Brendan Allen, what he did against Vieira, defending all those takedowns. But, I mean, they were also kind of one-note takedowns. And on the feet, Vieira is a bit one-note himself. You know, he's going to throw that right hand, and Chris was able to slip it and come over the top with the left hand. He just didn't have that opportunity here, because Hermanson was just really, he was really thoughtful and systematic with his jab and he was just throwing those kicks in and he was maintaining range the whole time when he was backed up to the cage he was leveling out his stance and he was threatening to move out both directions and he was keeping Chris guessing the whole time and he's moving away from that left hand you know he got caught with a couple of right hooks here and there but I don't know man Chris's jab just wasn't there he needs the jab in the in a scenario like this he needs that longer weapon And he needs to be able to corral Jack towards that left hand. And he just didn't have that weapon. He was missing with the right hook because it wasn't a long-range weapon. And because he's not landing the right hook, Jack's able to just move out that side completely free. Just like, oh, yep, cool. You can't reach me with this right hook here. So I'm just going to move to my left, away from your left hand. Sensational. And it just, you know, worked out for him. Yeah, this weekend also had one one fifty nine, one championship one fifty nine. It was the Derrida Big Dash card, and in the main event we had well, Derrida was able to defend his middleweight championship against Vitali. It was pretty impressive. It was interesting. It was interesting stuff because well, he comes out, Derrida does. RDR comes out and he immediately throws a flying switch knee, and then gets countered with a hook, and (laughs) initiates a takedown, and then Big Dash is like, he's standing his ground, it it was interesting watching him kind of no-sell this takedown attempt, because you see him, like, basically, just like, he's holding onto the front headlock, he's holding onto the guillotine, he is not, like, trying to push down the head or anything, he's just, like, standing there, and then all of a sudden he just jumps guard and decides to actually commit to the, to the guillotine attempt. And it's an arming guillotine. The issue with the arming guillotine is that it looked like he was getting a lot of talk on the right side. On this is Big Dash, his right side. He was getting a lot of talk on the right side because that's where his arm was. But when you've got an arming guillotine, you get a lot of the you get a lot of talk on the other side of the neck. Via condensing the space as much as possible so that their shoulder kind of bites into the vessel, into the blood vessel, and restricts their ability, you know, restricts the body's ability to get blood to the brain. And that's what's going to put them out. So he was getting a lot of talk on that right side of his, but he wasn't compressing the space very much. He was kind of sitting back. And, I mean, there's there's a million and one ways to apply an arming guillotine. I'm just saying that the the arming guillotine that I see most consistently involves guys kind of doing a crunch, basically, and just compressing the amount of space around the the neck as much as possible. And then that restricts blood, and that's going to put someone out. But, yeah, no. He didn't really get it. RDR was able to get out, and he ended up on top. Then Big Dash was just kind of holding onto guard for a long time. And then... Derrida kind of committed to a, a Kimura attempt. He committed to a Kimura attempt on the opposite side. So he's in half guard. He's in half guard with his right leg trapped. And then, uh, does he get into side control? I don't think, I think he gets into side control or he nearly gets into side control. He's in like, you know, he's nearly freed himself from half guard and he goes for a Kimura on the opposite side and Big Dash does the right thing, turns away from Derrida. so turns into the Kimura and is gives up his back, but then he's able to turn back into Derrida as Derrida tries to take the back, as Derrida tries to, to set up. Well, it looked like he was going for an armbar, actually. It looked like he was going to switch from the Kimura to the armbar. I didn't notice that on the initial view, because on the when, when they were just showing the fight as it was happening, they switched to a behind-the-back view where you can see Fucking nothing, and I'm like, bitch. This is an important transition in a championship fight. I would like to be able to see whether or not anything significant's happening. And then it showed on, it showed on replay that oh, Dorita was trying to set up a fucking armbar, which is significant, which is very significant because in the subsequent exchange, so so Dorita he he starts losing the Kimura. Big Dash is turning away from him, and he starts going up, and he puts his legs up, and it looks like he's going to go for an armbar, and then. It ends, that exchange ends with Big Dash on top of Dorita kind of stacking him up with a knee shield in front of him. Dorita has a knee shield preventing Big Big Dash from passing. And then Dorita switches his hips and it looks like he's going to commit to an armbar. And Big Dash is like, oh, this is chill. My fucking right arm, which, you know, because Dorita is switching to Big Dash's left side, the right arm is the one that is at risk of being hyperextended. That's the one that you'd go for with an armbar. And Big Dash is like, oh, well, my right arm is it in danger. It's all good. It's fine. It's, it's out from, like, it, he's not able to get to it with his arms. He's not able to to grab a hold of it. So it's all good. But then he switches instead for a fucking, for an inverted triangle. And that's what causes the finish. Big Dash gets submitted in the, in the first round off of this inverted triangle that puts him to sleep. So I was a bit irritated with one there because I, when I saw that replay, I'm like, that's kind of significant because I think Big Dash recognized that he's got to keep his arms, he's got to keep his arms out of danger because he, well, he was fearful of the Kimura. He was able to reverse the position and avoid the Kimura, and then you see in the little transition, Derrida kind of holds onto that arm, and then as he's dropping to his back. And Big Dash is turning into him. He puts his legs up, and it's clear that he's looking, you know, for an armbar. He's looking for hyperextension of of the of the elbow. You know, he's he's trying to get something going. And then that kind of plays into when he puts up the inverted triangle, because I think Big Dash is specifically trying to avoid the fucking armbar. Hmm, it was a bit irritating. My explanation there was really shitty. I apologize for how poorly I explained that entire sequence. But yeah, you know what else is on this card? Uh, you had down on the prelims. They t- they call it the lead card, but it's effectively the prelims. Ariel Sexton took on Murat Gafirov. Gafirov got the victory. The only really interesting thing about this fight was the fact that Ariel Sexton's left hook is hilarious. It looks like a it looks like a wacky waving inflatable arm flailing tube man. Yeah, it looks like one of those. When he throws his left hook, it just has it comes out so far from his body it's hilarious. So I was having a really fun time watching it because of that. You had Daniel Williams, the Australian, actually he defeated uh jilang? jilang We'll go with jilang. Defeated him by knockout in the first round. I thought he was doing a really good job. He was trying to pull counter the jab of Gelang, And it, it's a difficult thing because you don't want to be too committed to the pull counter right hand because it can become quite predictable, you know? So you've got to mix it up. You've got to show other weapons. And, you know, Williams does have a habit of... I think sitting in the pocket just that second too long when he throws, that's kind of his issue with throwing left hooks to the body. He did throw a really nice left hook to the body in the middle of this fight off of the lead hook up top. So he threw the left hook to the head, and then he went with the left hook to the body after that. And that worked a treat. But what he'll often do is he'll often throw like a straight right into a left hook, or he'll throw the the 3-2, and then he'll just sit in the pocket, and his head's right there on a silver fucking platter, and you're like, Dude, Get your head offline, pivot, do some shit. Don't be there for the return fire, which is invariably going to come. So, yeah, it it does concern me when he is so committed to a single weapon like the pull counter right hand. But hey, Jilang didn't seem to pick up on it <laughs> a lot of this fight, and when he was taking it into consideration, when he was not, when he was trying to avoid offering that easy that easy shot and trying to be elusive with his jab that's when Williams went to the outside low kick which is obviously the same side as the right hand so he's throwing the outside low kick he's throwing the outside low kick at one point chops down he chopped him down actually and dropped him off of the outside low kick really well placed just above the knee it was really beautiful and then the finish actually happens with Williams, Fainting a step in, and Jalang lifts up his lead leg as if he's going to try and check a kick, and it, it, it feels like he was anticipating another outside low kick. Williams recognized that, and instead of going for the low kick, he feints it, and then he nails him with the right hand down the middle and cracks him, and he's out. And It was a little bit, it was a bit of a scary knockout, actually. He was out for quite a bit. He was out there for a good fucking minute, but yeah, that was a, a really impressive win. I think Daniel Williams has been has been quite impressive recently uh, since, well, since the Rod Tang fight. I mean, he's really been impressing people and, and drawing people in. Lost to Rod Tang in, what was that, April of last year, I think. I think that was April. And then, you know, since then, he's been doing good things. I didn't realize that he'd been fighting, in Mixed Martial Arts this is, he'd been fighting in Eternal up until like 2020. But yeah, no, he fought his first four fights in Eternal. Had that great fight against Chris Wace back in 2019. Got a TKO in the second round. And then since he's gone to one, he's now on a three-fight winning streak, including, well, that was, there was that KO to, oh, I can never say his motherfucking name. And now Sirichoki. oh god, that was, jeez, that was, ooh, I, feel, I feel pretty bad about that pronunciation there. Yeah, anyway, the, the straight right to the body the, <laughs> that he got uh, that knockout with, and then he's most recently coming off of a decision against Kawahara, and now he gets this KO, and it looked it looked really good. I, I, he got caught with a couple of shots out of the gate, I thought Geelong had really good speed, it was really quick first 15, 20 seconds, my first comment was, oh no, (laughs) Daniel Williams, for the love of God, stay away from that jab, because that thing is fast. Yeah, so that was interesting. And then Williams got on the mic and cut a mean promo, and he was calling for... Who was he calling for? He was calling for Laziri, that's it. He was basically calling for anyone in in the Muay Thai Grand Prix. And... I mean, that Flyweight Grand Prix, man, if anyone drops out, chuck Daniel Williams in there, because even if he doesn't get the W, it's going to be entertaining, so I don't really give a shit. He does If anyone drops out, put him in there. Whatever. That that's that Flyweight Grand Prix is the hardest shit that the combat sports world has seen in, in a minute, honestly. It's my favorite thing in combat sports right now, if I'm being honest with you. There ain't nothing like it. And what else do we have? We had Joe Nutterwatt took on Jamal Yusupov. Yusupov got the victory, got a decision. It was a bit of a weird fight because Nutterwatt, I thought, was doing really well, but then he got knocked down at the end of the second round, and it was a kind of delayed knockdown. Think like Shane Burgos versus Edson Barboza. But I don't know if it was the same situation in that, well, you see Barboza crack. Burgos with, I think it's a right hand, and then Burgos kind of takes it, shakes it off, and then, like, his eyes just seem to go straight, and he can't can't really see anything. It feels like his, his vision is completely zoned in, and the light's are turning off in real time. It was really, really odd. Whereas this one, he takes a left hand from from Yusupov, none of what does, and he stumbles back, looks like he's hurt, and then he takes a couple of extra shots but most of them seem to miss. I don't think anything landed really in the follow-up strikes. And then he takes he, he drops to his butt and he takes a takes a standing eight count. And if that's what he needed to recover at the time, then you know more power to him because I mean, you've got a standing eight count. Use it. Don't fuck around. If you're hurt, then you shouldn't be right in front of your man getting cracked again and again and again and again. You should give yourself the eight count. You should give yourself an opportunity to recover. The classic example, classic, only happened a couple of years ago, I guess, but Tyson Fury versus Deontay Wilder in their first fight. Remember? Fury gets knocked down in that 11th round. He gets knocked to fucking shit. That left hand that he takes is on, on the way down massive, looks like he is dead, like he is just done, he will not be getting up from that, and he sits there on the ground, he sits there looking up at the ring lights, and then it kind of gets to the six count, and that's when he starts moving, he starts getting back up, and you know, he takes his time, he gives himself a minute, like, yeah, I just got the shit cracked out of me, I'm going to take a couple of seconds, you know, I've been given an opportunity to take a couple of a, couple of seconds, so exploit that opportunity, don't just throw it away for the sake of pride. Yeah. So I respect that he took the 8 count. If that was the the motivation for going and hitting the ground, or whether you know, maybe he just lost his footing, and maybe the shot hurt him more than he initially assumed it did, I have no idea. But it was a weird fight in the sense that Yusupov... Well, I mean, there was that. That was weird. But also, Yusupov, he's very tall, and he's leaning back towards his left... And it feels like what kind of clued on to that. It, who does he remind me of? Yusupov kind of reminds me of Jack De La Madalena in terms of his stance. Decent high guard for the most part. And quite, a, I think, a, a boxing-centric fighter. But, yeah, he, he's interesting because he's boxing-centric, but he stands quite tall. Which is something that we're starting to see in mixed martial arts a little more. But, I mean, this isn't mixed martial arts. This one was Muay Thai. Yeah, it was it was interesting. He does stand really tall, and he uses a shoulder roll quite frequently. He stands in southpaw, and he shoulder rolls, which is interesting. And there were a few times where I thought he's putting himself in a pretty compromised position because he's shoulder rolling, and he's leaning really heavy on his left leg. Like, he's pulling back to his left quite hard. And it's like, if your man Nutterwatt decides he's going to put up a fucking right high kick, you're sleeping. It's as simple as that. But I thought Yusupov actually did a decent job in terms of the distance management. And even though some of his pullbacks and some of his his slips looked very labored and kind of almost comical in how exaggerated they were, they were very effective, and he wasn't getting caught with a lot of those high kicks. His arm looked bludgeoned, though. There's one point where the commentators started noticing how bruised his left arm was because Naruto had just been blasting body kicks and they've been they've been catching the arm but if you've ever been kicked in the arm it's not a fun experience it's not like oh yeah i blocked the shot how delightful no it still fucking hurts cuz you've just been kicked in the fucking arm <laughs> and so that just i mean Yusupov was still throwing was still throwing that straight left pretty consistently so you just seem to be able to walk through it and deal with the adversity of that scenario. But yeah, damn. It looked like it fucking hurt. But yeah, Jamal Yusupov. Interesting character in the sense that I just feel like his style shouldn't work as effectively as it did. <laughs> but he hits like a truck. So, you know, whatever. He's got a good chin, evidently, because I thought Nutterwatt was cracking. I thought he, he landed some big shots moving ahead, what have we got, this coming week has, oh yes, UFC 277, this is the Peña Nunez 2 card, which, I mean, we don't really care for that main event that much, because, I don't know, the first fight was just so fucking, ugh, it was some ugly striking, some ugly striking, I mean, Juliana Peña just turned into that left jab, and kept firing it over and over and over again and Nunez just couldn't seem to time it it was weird it was weird and and i I think Nunez is a genuinely well-trained fighter has some really good solid striking fundamentals but yeah Peña just showed her a fucking jab and it was like oh she has no idea what to do this is fucking weird you know so I don't know I expect Nunez to win because she just has more weapons. I expect that. I mean she trains at American Top Team with motherfuckers like Mike Brown. You don't think Mike Brown is going to sit her down and be like. Okay. She beat you with a fucking jab. And it wasn't that good of a jab. She was leaning really heavy over her right her right leg. She was turning her, her head down. And slipping to avoid your return fire. What do we fucking do? I don't know. There's just There's just so many answers to that. There's just so many answers to that. I mean, they're they really damn good at game planning. Like, think about the way that Nunez finished Holly Holm in the first round. She waited for that. She waited for that oblique kick or that side kick from Holly, and then she retracted the lead leg, so she didn't give her the 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 leg to kick. She retracted the lead leg, then she went high with her own high kick, and because Holly was in the process of throwing her own kick, and was just forced out of position because the leg she wanted to kick it it was it wasn't there when she went to kick it. She was she was completely open. She was very vulnerable. Like that's a very specific, a very specific opening that they drilled and that they addressed directly, and so I imagine that they're going to be doing the same kind of thing. And I just I envision. I think the outside low kicks for Nunez are going to be money. That's going to be the key to a lot of this. It's just going to be outside low kicking, preventing Pena from creating that stable base with the jab. I can, Yeah, I can see Nunez pairing that outside low kick with her own jab. Look for the right hand over the top of Pena's jab, basically. As the fight goes on, I think Pena will become a little more timid. And so much of her success in the first fight was predicated on the fact that she was confident with her jab. She was like, I can throw it out there, you know? It's working for me. It, it keeps working for me. If Nunez can create a bit of apprehension by outside low kicking and jabbing with her, not jabbing with her the same way that she was in the first fight, because when she was jabbing with her in the first fight, Peña was the one slipping off to the side, so she was coming up. Like, Nunez was coming up second best in that exchange because she wasn't hitting. You know, if she can... If she can outside low kick and she can jab with Peña but you know slip herself perhaps uh, as opposed to keeping her head right up there on a silver platter. You know, I think she'll she'll create some timidity in Peña and then that's when the right hand is going to start landing over the top of the jab of Peña's. I'd also like to see this fight hit the ground because I think Peña and Núñez are fun grapplers or they can be fun grapplers. So I would like to see that occur. In the co-main, though, is a fucking banger. Brandon Moreno is taking on Kaikara France. This is a rematch. They had a fight a while back, and it was the kind of fight that it was... It was Brandon Moreno's coming-out party, you know? It was like how Moreno ended up fighting Davison Figueiredo, and Figueiredo's coming-out party was the Pantoja fight. That was the fight that made everyone go, oh, this guy could win a fucking belt, or this guy could be a problem for the rest of the division, you know? Because Brandon Moreno had a kind of up-and-down trajectory in the UFC. You know, this this was back a couple of years ago when they were talking about cutting the flyweight division because Dana and his boys are fucking idiots, you know? Uh, bitches want to come on Twitter, and they want to tell me, like, they want to tell all these motherfuckers who are, who are jostling for better fighter pay and who are like, oh, fighters need to unionize because the UFC's, you know, pulling some bullshit. Motherfuckers then come on and they talk about Dana and they're like, but he's so smart and, you know, he's just the best promoter and, you know, he deserves this money because he's earned it because he's a great promoter. You're you're taking money away from the sport if you're giving it back to fighters and it's like, shut the fuck up, you dumb cunts. You fucking idiots. And bitches, it, this is just such a common thing when people criticize Dana or they criticize the UFC. They bring up, oh, well, you know, Dana's making these opportunities and he is... You know, he's so giving. This is an opportunity for these fighters. They're perroading that rhetoric that he fucking spits out there, and it's complete bullshit. But then you, you want to you wanna sit there and tell me that Dana's an incredible promoter who's just, he's unparalleled. This bitch nearly shut down the fucking flyweight division. There are so many great fighters in the flyweight division. I mean, Horaguchi fucking sells out in Japan, okay? And then he comes into Bellator and has that banger, that massive fight against Sergio Pérez. Pettis, Pettis, I was about to say Pettis, that's fucking weird, not, not a supermassive fight, it's Bellator, like, I'll hold my horses there, it can't be supermassive, it's fucking Bellator, but, you know, it has a pretty damn big fight with Sergio Pettis, and y'all motherfuckers want to sit here and tell me that Dana was justified in trying to cut the division back in like 2017, 2018, are you fucking dumb, are you dumb, yeah, it was some bullshit, you know, Brandon Moreno went on that 3-5 winning streak. He lost on Tough and he got eliminated in the first round. And then he comes back on short notice to fight Lewis Smolker and then submits Smolker, who's obviously a ground specialist, in the first round. It's a whole big thing. And then he has that, that split decision against Ryan Benoit. That was a fun fight. And then he has that, that submission on Dustin Ortiz. And then he got his main event opportunity, and I just thought he did not have the activity necessary. He was... He just wasn't landing consistently against Sergio Pettis. He was getting countered constantly. Couldn't work his ground game much at all. Eh, it was, yeah, it was a it was a disappointing fight as a Moreno fan, and it was in Mexico City as well. So it was in it was in front of his home crowd, and he wasn't able to really show out with it. So it was a bit disappointing. And then he lost to Alejandro Pantoja, who we know is legit as fuck, has always been legit as fuck, and the fact that he hasn't got a title shot yet is a bit. Um, I don't like it. I don't like it. has he lost recently? Is that the thing? Is the reason that he hasn't No. I mean he lost to Oscar back in two thousand twenty, but he's since he decisioned Manel Cape, who's got a lot of hype behind him now. And he also he beat Brandon Roy Vale in two thousand twenty one. You know? Like shit, why isn't why hasn't Pantoja got a title shot? That's beside the point. I I'm I'm I digress, okay? Anyway, goes into LFA, wins the LFA flyweight championship, has a fucking merry old time. Then they bring him back into the UFC, has a draw with Askar Askarov. And then, you know, up to that point, I'm thinking to myself, his hands look decent, but he looks a bit... I don't know. He looks a bit weird throwing strikes. He throws His his shoulders are so far down on his body, and he kind of... I don't know. He looks really gangly. And, you know, he has some success in that Ryan Benoit fight, but I thought, you know, his style... It demonstrated some holes against Pettis. Wasn't able to get the volume up in that fight. And then against Kai Cara France, he comes out, okay? And in the first round, Kai is having a fucking ball day. He's getting to him. His jab. Francis's jab at the beginning of that fight looked fucking immense. He's landing low kicks. His right hand over the top. And Kai, as we're all acutely aware, really well-timed right hand off of the jab. He'll establish his jab and he'll establish his lead hand, his left hook as well. And that's when the right hand starts folding over the top, as it did against Cody Garbrandt. And, you know, he has a lot of success with that. He was having a lot of success with it in the first round. And then Brandon just kind of bit down on the mouthpiece and was exchanging and and creating messy exchanges in the pocket when Cara France was stepping in, in that second and that third round. And his tenacity, his willingness to engage, and, and his effectiveness with his left hook allowed him to work his way back into that fight. And, you know, it... They put on a sensational scrap, just a great fight, a great fight. And Moreno was able to get a a unanimous decision out of that. And if you just watch the first round in a vacuum, it looks like Cara France is a step ahead. You know, even though Brandon has a couple of moments in that first round, but it's Cara France's round. Absolutely. The fact that Moreno was able to work his way back into that fight and was able to dirty up some of those exchanges and they had a couple of exchanges on the ground as well. Man, I thought it was really impressive. I thought it was really impressive. And then he goes on. He beats Juicy Air Formiga. He beats Brandon Roy Vahl in that fight, which was, was a bit weird. I think, didn't Roy Vahl injure himself or something like that? And, you know, but... He was able to get that finish, and then he goes to that draw with Davis Davison Figueroa for the championship. Then no one, no one expected them to go to a draw. No one expected Moreno to be really competitive, honestly. And then he beats Figuero at UFC two hundred and sixty three. Most recently, Moreno had that really competitive third fight, that trilogy fight with Figueroa at UFC two hundred and seventy. And I, I, I gave Figueroa that fight. I think Figueroa did win that contest, but it was incredibly close, really close fight. So they're putting together this interim title fight as, with, with the rematch between Cara France and Moreno and I just think it's it's a sensational matchup it's a bit weird though I think it's mainly just because Figueiredo's jostling for a better contract he's out here like bro no I want fucking I want I want a big fight I want a big money fight and I want to make big cash bitches and the is like well fuck you we're going to set up an interim title fight <laughs> in your division with your with your arch nemesis Brandon Moreno so, yeah, that's going ahead. That one should be sensational. I think Brandon Brandon did have... His volume wasn't as much there in the Figueredo trilogy fight as it was in the rematch. In the second fight with Figueredo, I thought he was opening up. His elbows looked sensational on the feet. He was landing really sneaky shit on the feet with the elbows. Left hook looked like money. His jab was beating Figueredo to the punch. Figueredo is is a counter striker who he just kind of he stands with his hands by his waist, and if you can beat him to the punch, if you are fast as shit, it's very difficult for him to work his way back into a fight because he relies so much on the pullback and then going to the going with the left hook to the body or a pullback right hand uppercut. Like, those are the weapons that he loves. And it relies on his speed and his reactions. So if you are able to utilize your jab and you're able to be faster than him, you can give him a lot of issues. And I just felt like Moreno was engaging and initiating those exchanges because he knew, based on the first fight, oh, I can can exchange with this guy. My speed, I'm fast as shit. And I just thought he wasn't opening up as much in that trilogy fight. And I think he's got, to, he's got to be willing to engage here with with Cara France. We know Kai. He comes from City Kickboxing. He's got a great outside low kick. Sounds a lot more square than some of those City Kickboxing guys. He's, he's more like Brad Riddell than he is Alexander Volkanovsky, for example. But, yeah, he got a really nice jab. And it's off of that jab that he starts working his right hand. And... Really good extension with his right hand as well. He covers distance very effectively, and he can also—he's got great anti grappling. I expect that most of this fight's going to take place on the feet. I expect Brandon Moreno to shoot a couple of single legs here and there, and this this fight might hit the ground ground. But I think Cara France—he's he, really good at getting back to his feet. I envision him. I, I can kind of see Brandon Moreno taking the back. Cara, Cara France effectively working for risk control and and separating and turning back into Moreno in those positions and, you know, as they go back to the feet, landing some big shots on the way up. I think this this fight is really even. It's really even. I think in the back end of it, I think in the, the fourth and the fifth rounds, that's when Moreno is going to come alive. I think, you know, if you're playing it by the odds, I'd give it to Brandon Moreno by decision because I think he's going to be able to maintain his pace more effectively than Cara France will. But I think it's a very close fight. And I think, watch for Kai in those first two rounds. He's going to be, it's going to be difficult because I don't think he's as fast. I do not think he is as fast as Moreno is, based on what we've seen of Moreno in the past couple of years. And I think Moreno's jab is just so much better than it was. He flicks it out a lot. Uh, he feints so much better to set up that jab and he flicks it out really quickly. And I think the first few rounds is going to be, it's going to be basically Kai looking for his looking for his jab and he's going to get out jabbed a little bit and he's going to be trying to land his right hand over the top or he's going to be trying to land the rear hand uppercut countering the jab of Moreno that's going to be kind of that's going to be the battle that we're going to see we're going to be seeing a lot of Kai trying to counter that jab of Moreno he's got to be careful of the other weapons though cuz Moreno can kick Moreno also throws a really nice step up switch kick and that is a weapon you should definitely watch for i think that that could be something in in tandem with the jab. Those those things are gonna give Cara France a lot of issues, particularly late, I think. Oh, I mean actually, well, Moreno's gonna be fastest in the first round, so I think it's gonna be problematic early, but then later on when Kai's a little a little more lackadaisical, laxadaisical, a little bit more a little bit more gassed, that's when that switch high kick might be an issue for Cara France. So, yes, I'd say Moreno, is, he should rightfully be the favorite in this matchup. But it's its an interesting one. It's a very interesting one. And I do expect that Moreno is going to have some issues with the overhand right. He's going to have some issues with the rear hand uppercut. And also the jab to the body. I think Cara France does a really nice jab to the body. And if you compare that, if you compare that with the right hand over the top, like throwing jab to the body and then going over the top with the right hand, he's going to have a lot of success. You know, so this will be a very fun fight, very interesting fight, very fast fight. That's the main thing. Like these two guys are going to be throwing fast as fuck. It might might start a little bit, like the first minute or so of the first round might be a bit of a feeling out process. But once they start throwing, it's going to be quick, and every shot is going to come at a million miles an hour. So it should be very fun in that regard. You've actually got Alejandro Pantoja on this card. He's taking on Alex Perez. Yeah. I think Pantoja should win that. <laughs> I just think Pantoja's fucking great. I think he's really good and his, his striking has gotten better. It's gotten better and better and better and better. Yeah, I just think Pantoja's the shit. What else is on this card? Derek Lewis is taking on Sergei Pavlovich. Maybe I'll finally finish. I, I was writing like a year or two ago a video about, it, about Derek Lewis and how he is the most boring, exciting fighter ever. He is a really exciting fighter because he has a lot of finishes, but in between those finishes, he has boring fights, okay? And I started writing a video about it, basically just highlighting the Shamil Abdurakimov fight because that shit is boring. That is like four rounds of Derek not able to do it. Like, he's, he's lashing out and he's throwing big hooks and whatnot, but he can't find the opening. And then he just kind of he deadens Abdurakimov in the fourth round, and you're like, well, cool, I guess. <laughs> I guess that's the end of the fight. <laughs> you know, so I was I was running that ages ago, but I never I never finished writing that. And I probably should. But I'm still, for the love of God, I'm still editing this fucking Mike Brown video. I don't know, man. It takes a while to do these things. And I've got so many things going on right now. Anyway. Anthony Smith is also fighting Muhammad Uncle Live. That's interesting, actually. I actually favor Anthony Smith in that fight. I didn't think I would, but I, I wasn't all that impressed by Uncle Iev's last fight, which was against, it was against Thiago Santos. I thought, yeah, I thought it was a bit dull. And I think Anthony Smith, I think his jab has looked really good recently. He does stand quite tall. I expect Uncle Live will be shooting. You've also got to watch for the left high kick with Ankalive. He loves that weapon. He loves the pullback left hand. He loves his right hook into straight left. He's just, he's a southpaw who uses all the southpaw things. But I think Anthony Smith looked really good against Jimmy Crute. That's the one that I'm thinking of that, that I really point towards. Because Jimmy Crute, you know, not the greatest stand-up in the world, but he's a heavy hitter. Got great low kicks. Got great low kicks, as we saw against. Was it against Modestus Pecorkus? Yeah, his low kicks were really nice in that fight, and he also had a really nice pull counter in that fight. And Anthony Smith nullified those weapons. Those weapons they weren't there for Jimmy. And the outside low kick for for Smith was great, and obviously he was able to shut down the lead leg of Crute, and that's what led to the uh, led to the finish. Jimmy he couldn't he couldn't engage because his leg was completely cooked. I mean he was still taking Anthony down at the end of the first round, but you know, he wasn't able to stand. So, you know, the fight was rightfully stopped. Yeah, so I think since losing to he lost to Glover by a TKO, that was fucking brutal. And then he lost that boring, boring decision to Alexander Rukic. I think he's gone on a little decent run. Victories over Devin Clark, Jimmy Crute, and Ryan Spann. That Spann fight was a main event. Fuck, I keep forgetting that. I forget that happened. Huh. Yeah. This one should be interesting. I Yeah, I think I favor Anthony Smith in this, honestly. Uh, particularly because it's a three-round fight. If it's a five-round fight, I'd probably give the edge to Uncle Ive. Because I think he has more weapons over the course of five rounds. And and his wrestling style... or when he wrestles, is going to be more effective over a longer distance. He's going to be he's going to be able to accumulate more rounds that way. He's going to be able to get more time and control. And on the feet, I think, I can see Anthony Smith coming down the middle with the straight right as Uncle Live is throwing up that left high kick or throwing, he sometimes throws it, he throws left inside low kick. Which, you know, southpaw versus orthodox, you don't often see a lot of guys who really effectively inside low kick with the rear leg in that kind of matchup because you have to cover so much more distance with the rear leg in that instance. Versus, you know, if it's close stance and you throw your rear leg, you're kicking to the lead leg of your opponent. So it's a lot closer. But because it's it, the lead leg that you're kicking is now on the opposite side, you have to kick extra far. So it can be a difficult shot to land because you have to you have to kick across yourself. You know, I'm trying to think uh, the example I'm thinking of is like Benil Dariush versus Drakkar Close. I think Benil Dariush hurts Drakkar Close with a shot as Close is throwing an inside low kick. And that's a Southpaw Orthodox matchup because Benil was Southpaw. Yeah, so Drakkar kicks across himself for the inside low kick. And that's when he gets cracked because it's just it takes more time to throw you get that extra half second of time that you need to that you need to throw the shot. It's it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to land and not get countered. And I, I can see Anthony Smith honestly countering Muhammad and Live a couple of times in those kind of positions. Actually, speaking of Dracar Close, he is on this card. He's fighting Rafa Garcia. Cool, I like Dracar Close. I think I I don't know. He said some dumb shit in the past. I think, but I'm okay with him nowadays. Who else is on this card? There's some great fights. Actually, no, I'm looking up and down. and There's not as many great fights as I thought there was. Dontel Mays is back. Cool. Ugh. Drew Dober is back against Rafael Alves. That's dope because I love fucking Drew. I, I love fucking Drew Dober. I have not fought. I am not fucked Drew Dober. Sorry. But I'm sure it's delightful. Yeah, no, I love Drew Dober. He's great. Great Southpaw. He's Southpaw, isn't he? Yes, he is Southpaw. Great left hand. Fucking great left hand. Great right hook. Good kicks. Good body kicks. Mm. Love a Drew Dober fight. Yeah, no, that should be fun. Are there any other cards? What else can we talk about? What else is interesting? Well, <laughs> this week we had some dumb shit get announced. What do we get? We got Piotr Yarns taking on Sugar Sean O'Malley at UFC 280, I believe that is. And that fight just makes you go, oh, "What?" <laughs> it, it's good though. I, I'm excited to see, to see Sean O'Malley step his game up. But I have seen a few people online kind of discount Piotr Yan after a close fight with Aljamain Sterling. <laughs> and it's like, bro, did you see the pri- the fights prior? Did you see his Corey Sandhagen fight? Like. Did you forget that happened? (laughs) Because I didn't. And that fight was fucking insane. And Piotr Jan adjusted deep into the fifth round and did incredible things in the latter stages of that fight. Like, this is scary. I mean, if you're Sean O'Malley, you're glad that it's only three rounds because Piotr Jan takes a bit of time to get working in the first. So Sean might be able to take the first just by virtue of having some volume. But then in that second and that third round, I I just envision... I envision Sean getting countered off of his his front kicks. That's what I envision happening. He's just got to stay. He's got to stay off that cage. He's got to stay off so diligently. Piotr Yarn's going to be throwing his classic, you know, jab cross, and then he switches into southpaw and throws a straight left. That's a money shot. You know, I mean, you don't want to be in close with Yarn because Yarn's going to be landing the elbows over the top. He lands a, he, he comes out of the clinch with with gorgeous spinning elbows. Check out my video on Yarn's clinch on the YouTube channel right now if you want more information on that kind of shit. Yeah, it's just so difficult because there are very few ranges that I see Sean O'Malley winning at. At distance, he's longer. And I think he fights longer than someone like Corey Sandhagen who who can fight quite long but he, he leans over quite a bit. Corey requires getting inside, getting in the pocket. He doesn't have, like, the long weapons. He doesn't fight with, like, a really long snap kick from a mile away. He kind of gets in on guys and does his damage in in the pocket, which you just wouldn't anticipate for a guy who's that much longer than so many of his opponents. Whereas Sean O'Malley does fight quite long, has a really nice long jab, and he utilizes those push kicks down the middle very effectively. And lots of high kicks as well and things like that. Yeah, I just think at range that that's where the fight has to take place, but I think Piotr Yan's gonna be landing big shots in that second and third rounds. Uh I can I can envision this kind of going down like the Piotr Jan Jimmy Rivera fight, where Jan is losing pretty much every single one of those rounds, but he lands a big shot at the end of each round. I can see Sean putting on a really good performance for four minutes of each individual round, but then getting cracked at the end of them as he's circling off. Yarn starts closing the distance on him. Sean's circling off, and then that's when the hooks start landing. That's when Yarn is able to land shots. Or if it goes into the clinch, you know, he's going to be landing elbows. He's going to be landing knees to the body and things like that. And You just avoid the clinch. Just avoid the clinch with Piotr Yarn as much as you fucking can if you are Sean O'Malley. <laughs> it's as simple as that, Okay. It's not. It's a very difficult fight for him. And, uh, yeah, I think I don't know what the odds are, actually. I haven't looked them up. But I assume the odds are very much in favor of Piotr Jan. If you find, like, if we're going by American odds, if you find a bookie that's offering Peotty for, like, as a favorite for, like, minus 250, jump on that. Jump on that like a motherfucker because I just think, I think he's going to, I think he'll beat the shit out of Sean O'Malley. Yeah. Pretty much. What else is there? Oh, there was fucking... Nate Diaz is fighting Hamzat Atchemaev. What the fuck? What the fuck? That's the dumbest fucking shit I've ever seen. The dumbest shit. I've seen some dumb shit. I mean, Nate Diaz fighting Leon Edwards was dumb shit. This is even dumber shit. What the fuck? And it's just because the UFC is like, well... If you're going to, if you're going to leave the USC, which he clearly wants to, he wants to go and he wants to do his own thing, or that, or get a fucking massive contract, and I just they're not going to give him that contract. He's he they're, they're setting him up for failure. He's gotten one of his worst possible matchups versus Hamza Shmaev, and. If he loses, then he's a free agent, and his value fucking plummets. And he's probably going to lose. He's probably going to lose. I just, I don't know, dude. I think those fourth and those fifth rounds will be interesting because Shemaev looked very visibly gassed at the end of that Burns fight, and that was only three rounds. But I don't know, dude. I think he's got a fucking great chin. Shemayev has a great chin, and I, I don't know, man. I don't know. I just think Chimaev's going to beat the shit out of, out of Diaz, honestly. We'll see how things go, though. We'll see. That's main eventing of fucking pay-per-view. Which one is that, actually? So, this upcoming weekend... Which one is this upcoming? That's 277, isn't it? Yeah, 277. This one's 279. The Chimaev nate Diaz card. That also has, like, Johnny Walker, Eon Kutalaba. That was announced this week. Delightful. Irina Aldana's fighting on that versus Macy Jason. That's cool. I like that fight a lot. But then all roads kind of lead to UFC 280. That's the one that we, we got a bunch of announcements in the past week about. That's the one where Piotr Jan's taking on Sean O'Malley. Awesome. You've got... Well, Wikipedia is still saying that Aljamain Sterling and TJ Dillashaw is on that card. Is that is that it? I think that one got moved. I think that was it. They they moved the Joe Dillashaw bantamweight championship fight off of 279 because of chemaev and and diaz which i'm like really are you fucking serious i I guess nate diaz can he can headline a card by himself and and chemaev is is massive on social media right now so like you know makes sense to me but still the fuck yeah this 280 card looks insane now it looks immense. Charles Oliveira versus Islam Makashev in the main event. Obviously, that's for the uh, the vacant lightweight championship. We all know Charles Oliveira is essentially the lightweight champion. He's the he's the uncrowned champion right now, but everyone kind of agrees. Well, you know, he it feels like a defense for him. It doesn't feel like he's lost the belt. And then Benil Dariush is taking on Gamrot. That was announced this week. That's dope. Bilal Muhammad's taking on Sean Brady. Yeah, it's certainly a fight. Uh, Sean Brady should... I mean, they've certainly given Sean Brady the, the easiest fight to kind of crack that top five. If, if they want him to move into the top five, this is the fight they give him to allow him to crack the top five. Because, I don't know, people always doubt Bilal Muhammad, I guess, and, you know, it's easy to sit here and be like, ah, oh, Bilal Muhammad's not that good. But, I don't know, I just... Uh, I just don't care about that fight as much. <laughs> but then you've got Aljo versus Dillashaw. That's fucking Incredible. I think that's a really interesting fight in a million and one different ways. Piotr Jan versus Sean O'Malley we just talked about. That's really interesting. Marina Rodriguez versus Amanda Lemos. Lemos fought last weekend against Michelle Waterson Gomez. And she's she's running it back pretty quick. And then Tucker Gov's taking on Lucas Almeida. When the fuck did that get announced? The other day, apparently. Like two days ago. Yeah, so that, that fight card looks immense. I didn't even talk about Douglas Lima versus... Uh, what's his name? Jaron Jackson. That's the one. I forgot for a second there. <laughs> didn't even talk about that Bellator card. But, uh, I mean, that was mainly just because the main event was fucking ass. It was so boring. But then you had, like, Lorenz Larkin. He fought, but then that ended with an elbow to the back of the head. Yeah, I, I just didn't... I didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't think I give a shit, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> Usman Namagomedov, got a choke over Chris Gonzalez, submitted him in the first round, cool, awesome, but, you know, I want to see if there is a one championship card this week, because I would like a one championship card this week, because, I don't know, one. 159 was really good. And I'd like to see more of that, honestly. But, yeah. I mean, 160 is on late August, August 26th. That one's pretty good. That one's got uh, Walter Gonzalez is back against Superlec. Buck yeah. That's dope. There's an alternative bout uh, for the Grand Prix between Kabutov and Pampayak, Jim Wignon. So that's cool. Who else? The one lightweight championship is up between uh, Rayyun and Lee. Tan Lee's also fighting in the co-main for, well, he's defending the, the featherweight championship. Amir Khan. Not that Amir Khan. He's fighting on the, on the prelims. <laughs> I said that about his last fight. I will continue making the exact same joke. Ha ha ha. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. And then later on in August twenty seventh, the day after, actually, I think that's the first. Yeah, so one recently signed a contract to do we with Prime Video with Amazon Prime, and they're doing cards for them now. So August twenty seventh is the first Prime card, and that's fucking stacked. Rod Tang's taken on Savas so Michael. That's the semi final for the the flyweight Grand Prix. Awesome. Fucking awesome. And then John Haggerty's is actually opening the main card against Nazeri. Then, that's dope. you got Max Almeida. is fighting Grushenko. In the main event, though, is Adriano, Adriano Moraes is taking on Demetrius Johnson in their rematch, which is super exciting. We're, we're so excited. We're so excited. Also, Liam Harrison is fighting for the... Uh, I didn't realize, actually. I hadn't seen the announcement. But he's fighting for the Bantamweight Championship. The One Muay Thai Bantamweight Championship. In the co-main event, main event against Nongo. I like that a lot. That should be a banger. Low kicks, baby. Fucking low kicks. Cool. Oh my god, I've waffled for like an hour and a half. Alright, I should probably fuck off. I apologise for missing a couple of weeks, but I just... I had a lot on. Couldn't find the time. This weekend actually had some like some really good cards. some Some great fights. Some shitty fights. Some shitty things went went down, but it was interesting enough that it, it motivated me to actually talk into a microphone for once. So you know, credit to all the the fights that went down. I hope you have a sensational week wherever you are, whoever you are, and I will catch you on the flip side whenever that might be. Probably next Saturday, which for you Americans, if you are an American listening to this, will be your Friday, so the 29th. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see how things shake out. All right, catch you later. Bye.